1: Welcome back to TV's Top 5, the Hollywood Reporter's TV podcast. I'm Leslie Goldberg, West Coast TV editor, and I'm joined, as usual, by my partner in crime and THR's chief TV critic, Mr. Daniel Feinberg. What's shaking, Dan?
2: Well, we're out of TCA's and into a different form of chaos, so... I could use a nap, Leslie.
1: Yeah, it's back to business as usual, and it's not like the news crush is slowing down anytime soon, but I am happy to get back to the office and out of the Langham Hotel in Pasadena.
2: Though we should certainly emphasize that during the TCA press tour we did was it seven or eight showrunner spotlights Leslie?
1: Seven showrunner spotlights plus the John Landgraf executive interview so, so a we total would, of eight interviews.
2: So we would be remiss in not thanking our uh, network publicity friends who made those interviews happen and made sure that we got really exceptional amounts of time with some very very smart people and we look forward to disseminating those interviews over the many months to come since at least one of them isn't until early summer and so that's a long time away but let me assure you that summer interview is a really good one and made leslie cry with happiness
3: it's central park but people don't
1: know what central park is it's coming on apple it's from the creator of bob's burgers but anyway we i digress <laughs> so yes thank you to all the wonderful we, people we just the moved network. Into
2: asmr for this podcast we apologize we're not going to do that again unless you're into that sort of thing
1: Oh, my God, Dan. Well, yes, I want to second what you said about uh, thanking all of our friends in, in the network publicity departments at various networks for making sure that we have had great time with great people and locations to record. And yeah, we've got a lot of good stuff coming, including, spoiler alert, two different interviews in this episode alone.
2: So let's get down to business. Are there any headlines this week, Leslie?
1: I see what you did there, Dan. Let's transition. Well... Here's a familiar one. Stop me if you've heard this before. Bill Abbott, the CEO of Hallmark parent company Crown Media, is out after an 11-year run with the cable network after he really mucked up the holidays for the company. Of course, Hallmark found itself at the center of a firestorm when it pulled ads featuring a lesbian wedding. Hallmark eventually would backtrack, but it was basically the worst kind of press at the worst time of year for them. A replacement for Abbott hasn't been named. And if you want to hear more... And for a taste of what likely led to Abbott's dismissal, please go back and check out our November 15th episode where we push him on Hallmark's lack of inclusion.
2: (sighs) It's not like we want anyone to lose their job. We just wanted a wider variety of holiday programming. Anyway, I don't think we necessarily did anything, but we were definitely asking the right questions at the right time. And so...
1: One of our best interviews, if you ask me, Dan.
2: Anyway, continuing with news, uh, in casting news, Billy Eichner has joined the cast of FX's recently delayed American crime story impeachment season. He will be playing Matt Drudge, which I assume will get that news report linked on the Drudge Report. Over at HBO Max, Rosario Dawson, who has USA's Briar Patch coming out on February 6th, will star in Ava DuVernay's DMZ, which is based on the DC Comics title.
1: Speaking of HBO Max, the forthcoming streamer from Warner Media has greenlit The Prince, an animated comedy based on Gary Giannetti's Instagram parody account of the royal family as told through the eyes of the young Prince George. Aww. Aww.
2: And pilot season is officially underway. And among this week's orders is an ABC drama based on the life of Aaron Brockovich from Grey's Anatomy and Station 19 boss Krista Vernoff with Katie Segal attached to Star. Seems interesting. Over at NBC, the network has picked up a comedy featuring Jim Jeffries. Yay, Jim Jeffries. Playing a fictionalized version of himself. Not really sure NBC is the right place for him, but not for me to say. Uh, And at CBS, friend of the podcast, Chuck Lorre, has added his second pilot of the season with a comedy about a kidney donor
1: hilarious and we'll be touching much more on pilot season in the coming weeks as things really pick up steam but right now things are just a lot of the orders are just starting to come in so no reads on the tea leaves just yet but expects you know from what we've seen early on lots of people already coming attached as stars and a lot of big producers so Rounding out this week's headlines over at Facebook, Jada Pinkett Smith's Red Table Talk has been renewed for multiple seasons and scored a spinoff featuring Gloria Estefan. Why we bring this up, it's because the social media platform is leaning heavily into Unscripted amid its retreat from the expensive scripted space after the cancellations of Limetown and Sorry for Your Loss, the latter from Friend of the Five, Kit Steinkelner is continuing to be shopped as they look to find a new network for the show.
2: It's a good show. Someone could probably make better use of it than Facebook Watch did. It
1: feels like a good FX or a Hulu show, if you ask me, Dan. It feels
2: like a good show for a lot of people and really should have been a good show for Facebook Watch, but you do you, Facebook Watch.
1: Yeah. Well, with all that out of the way, let's get into this week's top five. Number one. Leading off, Dan, Netflix revealed some new viewership data. (laughs) (laughs) I didn't think we'd be able to get through that with a straight face, but we're going to try. So, yeah, they revealed some new viewership data in its fourth quarter earnings report. But the main takeaway wasn't that 76 million member households watched Henry Cavill in the very divisive show The Witcher. Toss a coin to your Witcher. Dan, you're singing, man. Three I weeks love in it. a row. Three weeks in a row. No, the real insanity is that the streamer changed its definition of what it considers a view. Netflix, as we've discussed many times on this podcast, they don't release ratings information. But when they do, prior to this announcement, it was they counted a view as someone watching, a member household watching 70% of one episode of a series or 70% of a feature film. Either way, that metric is ridiculous and something that we've laughed at pretty much every time we bring it up. This time, now, the streamer, from here until eternity, or the next time they decide to make something up, the streamer will measure views with a quote-unquote choose-to-watch, like basically member households who choose to watch a given title, and they're counting as little as, wait for it, Dan. I'm here. Two minutes. If you watch two minutes of one episode, it's a view. Two minutes. That's it. I I mean, (laughs) basically, Netflix is saying... If that That is a, a period that's long enough to indicate that the choice to watch was intentional. Whether or not you watch a third minute and realize the show is shit or you didn't mean to, to put it on or autoplay, whatever it was, it doesn't matter. <sighs> Dan, I have in my notes, and I think this really just kind of sums it up. Nothing makes sense and everything is bullshit. It's
3: very
2: silly and virtually meaningless, and I, I really do think it's... Netflix attempting to say, ha ha ha, you wanted data, we'll give you data, and it will be so ridiculous that you'll be unable to report on it because it's so meaningless and you look like an idiot trying to justify it as news, and then we'll go back to being silent because silence is a better choice than reporting on ridiculous data. And, you know, it may work. I mean, 76 million member households watched, quote-unquote, Henry Cavill and The Witcher, and once again— I don't doubt for a single second that that show is a large hit for Netflix. I just don't know what it means. And I'm sure that whatever it means is not being in any way conveyed by the data they're giving. I mean, the the first sentence of the script here... Uh, for this segment is Netflix revealed some new viewership data in its fourth quarter earnings report. And I think you could put almost every word in that sentence in quotes. quotes yeah, Netflix revealed some new Let's, viewership to be clear. Data. To
1: be clear, I looked at the earnings report, and you know, we obviously anytime these things come out, you scan for the viewership numbers, and that becomes a story. But in this case, you know we're looking moving full full steam ahead. We see the numbers for the witcher, we see the numbers for you, et cetera. And then my co- our colleague, um, amazing Rick Porter, who covers ratings here for THR, and I say ratings without the air quotes this time, he discovered that, that this new metric, and I'm going to put metric in air quotes this time, was in a footnote. It was in a footnote of their release, Dan. A footnote. So... Well it was Report also, on our big ratings, but by the way, it's not really the same thing that you think it is. But this
2: was the same thing that they did uh, when they put out their 10 most popular whatever stuff uh, in the week between Christmas and New Year's, which as a result meant that we didn't discuss it on the podcast because otherwise we surely would have done this exact same segment then. Uh, no, you look at, yes, our colleague Rick Porter wrote a great story and our colleague and frequent uh, visitor to the five, Natalie Jarvie, wrote a great story where, I mean, among other things, According to their numbers, the Michael Bay movie Six Underground was, quote unquote, viewed by 83 million members. What does that mean?
1: that that 83 million member accounts watched two minutes of it and turned it off?
2: I don't know. Like 83 million. Are you seriously suggesting that if this had been a theatrical release based on average ticket prices, it would have made $800 million at the box office? How does this compare to Bird Box? I don't, you know, how does it compare to Roma? How does it compare to the Irishman?
1: All this metric does, and they even said we're upfront about this part, is that it basically is going to uptick any number by about 35%.
2: Only 35%, honestly it it just makes every number It doesn't
1: matter it doesn't matter what we're talking <laughs> about because all these numbers from Netflix are complete trash. They're
2: they're they're fiction and so, you know, even the 5 minutes we've probably given this here is is a lot, but yet we have to keep doing it. And I return back to what I said at the beginning is if they keep giving us garbage numbers, I think they assume that at a certain point we'll tune them out and then they won't need to give us any numbers anymore and that's a strategy.
1: I mean, it's also it's the same strategy, like what they're revealing. It's basically like counting a YouTube view. It's just it's not the same, especially when some of these programs come with the kind of price tags that they that they have. You know, when you're paying millions and millions of dollars to these creators and they're making expensive shows and, and with huge, huge casts. I mean, look, Henry Cavill's not a cheap actor to cast. The Witcher probably came with a very expensive price tag just for the rights to adapt the books. Sure. 76 million households watched two minutes of it. Yeah, sure.
2: <sighs> and so we've now given this non-news more time than necessarily required. And guess what? If Netflix announces quote-unquote ratings, quote-unquote data next week, we will most certainly report it as quote-unquote news.
1: And quote-unquote garbage. <laughs> well, I think moving on to our second topic here. Last week, we sat down with Better Call Saul creators Vince Gilligan and Peter Gold just minutes after it was announced that their AMC show had been renewed for a sixth and final season.
2: Number two In a TV's top five, first, we've decided to uh, split up the wide-ranging conversation into two parts. Up first, Vince and Peter discuss how they decided this was the right time to end their Breaking Bad sequel and the pressure that they face following that show's acclaimed ending. It is basically spoiler-free, maybe spoilers from last season or something, but in any case, it doesn't discuss the new season at all, so we're posting it now because it's actually news and then the second part where we discuss the premiere and sort of where the fifth season is going
1: and where the guys go next after this and if there will be more in this franchise
2: that will run after the Better Call Saul premiere which is Sunday February 23rd and Monday February
1: 24th. Thank you for joining us Peter and Vince. Thank you for having us. We're at TCA and you're fresh off of announcing that Better Call Saul would end with its sixth season to a room filled with reporters was it always a plan for for season 6? Can you talk about how you how you
4: arrived at that decision? I'm can to get season 1? Oh my <laughs> god. Oh my god. Yeah, take it, man. Take it. Run with it. What do you think? Was it always 6 no, seasons? No. No, it was ne- it was never. I mean, I think in our
5: wildest Well, I don't know. I mean, you know, Vince was always the optimistic one about this show because before I met Vince Gilligan, nothing good ever happened in show business in my life. Uh so uh, Vince was Vince was optimistic about it. I was mostly hoping that there wouldn't be a mob, uh, you know, because we destroyed the legacy of Breaking Bad. <laughs> I guess if you had asked me at the beginning, I would have said maybe three or four seasons, but we didn't understand what the show was at that point. And you know, fortunately, you know, it's it's always it's just a crapshoot, but I guess it's, it's 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 a and it's it's not taken for granted. It's successful enough that we can finish the story, which is. Really important. I, I, that's in yeah. fact.
4: I did not think six seasons, and I did not think one episode more than Breaking Bad, yeah. and it <laughs> pisses me off that Peter's doing that. <laughs> <laughs> I remember how to just
5: twist the knife. Years yeah. ago, on uh, actually on Breaking Bad, I was uh, schmoozing with Bryan Cranston in his trailer, and this was probably season two, and we just started talking about how great it would be for uh, to be able to tell, and it what you what you had in mind, Vince, but to tell the whole story and have, you know, a row of, uh, in those days, it was a DVD or a Blu-ray, just have the the spines and know that this is a story that began here, had a beginning, a middle, and an end in X number of episodes. And at that point, it really did seem like a dream. It didn't seem, I mean, we didn't know, especially with Breaking Bad, we didn't know season to season if we were coming back for quite a while. And the fact that we were able to do that is just awesome. But it does put a lot of pressure, I will say. The fact that I think it worked so well, the end of Breaking Bad worked so very well. I've kind of felt out of the shadow of Breaking Bad, really, for the last few seasons. But now that we're talking about ending, it's coming back a little bit. I'm thinking I'm thinking more about... I, I try not to think about Breaking Bad, because I really do think the show has to be completely as independent as it can be while taking place in the same universe. But now that we're talking about ends, Vince... With Vince leading, Breaking Bad stuck the landing. And I think the biggest danger creatively is to say, oh, I did it that way before and it worked. So I should do it the same way again now. I mean, the worst sin, I think, creatively is to imitate yourself. So we're hopefully we'll find a new way. So to accomplish the same ending? end. Is that... Yeah, we're going to do a shitty ending. <laughs> That's right. But no, uh, well, what I'm hoping is that we'll find a new way to do of course what will. we did on Breaking But you can't you just,
2: will. so you can't just start looking at that season and going, okay, we have to make sure the anti-penultimate episode is Ozymandias level quality, because if it isn't, it's going to be a disaster. <laughs> so
5: yeah, we'll, we'll get, we'll, we'll get Moira, Moira and Ryan back and we'll, oh, be, we'll be
4: solid. That would be awesome. Right? Ryan
5: is, is a pretty busy guy. You may need to let him know now if you're going <laughs> to. He is. I've heard rumors, though. You know, I went to uh, film school with uh, Ryan's editor slash producer, Bob Doucet. And every time I see Bob, I don't see Ryan that often, but I do see Bob fairly often. I always say, you think we can get him back out to the desert? And I, I think he has, a, I think he has a, a, a warm place in his heart for, uh, for out the Albuquerque world. So he you never awesome. know. Ryan, you never know. I'm going to awesome. So Ryan, come back, please.
4: Yeah.
2: And how confident would you say you are right now that 13 episodes is going to be enough and that they're going to air as a block rather than that it's going to become 14 as two half seasons, as everyone seems to try to do these days.
1: And where AMC, obviously, it's you guys are an important show, a signature show for AMC, but a lot of these networks try and they split up their final seasons and wanted it to air in multiple quarters. It helps Wall Street, et cetera. You know, and keeps you know the, the crown jewel around for a while.
4: That's a good question. Um, and by the way, let me make a prediction right now. I'm going to say this because Peter's Peter's too too much of a gentleman and uh, and way too modest. I think this show is absolutely with, with under Peter's leadership going to stick the landing. It's going to be awesome. And the Hollywood Reporter and other wonderful journalistic outlets are going to be having articles about which which one had the better ending. Oh Breaking Bad or no Better boy. Call Saul, and I bet you we, I bet you folks are gonna say Better Call Saul. I'm, I'm saying that right now. I'm, I'm saying it's going over the, the left field fence right now. That's what I'm saying. That's, uh, it's, it's. I, good way to take the
5: pressure off, Vince. Really? <laughs> no, you know really what? Good. I didn't
4: mean it to add pressure. I really, I'm just I really, because I, I cannot tell you how many people I run into, day in and day out, who say, I really liked. I was a fan of Breaking Bad, but I gotta tell you, Better Call Saul. I think I like it better. Wow! I mean, I hear that all the time. Wow! And and you know what? I thought I would I thought I would hate it, but uh, it it really it makes me happy every time I hear it. It really does. And just
5: to go back to the original question, <laughs> uh, yeah, I think I think it's going to air as a one block of 13 episodes, an angel from on high whispered <laughs> in my ear. Uh, yeah, and I know that's it's it's a, gonna, I know that's the plan, well, best you, laid we plan, said all. You know, <laughs> by the way? you know though, yeah. it's it's. I, it it, there's there's so many things that go into these and frankly you know we
4: it's not always for wall street sometimes it's it's a wonderful boon to the filmmakers to give them more time to to i mean yes i could understand the the quarterly thing and the wall street thing and all that the, the stock price thing and all that but it could be uh often could be a wonderful boon to the to the to the folks making the show that they have more time to finish them yeah, that's
5: one. We're so grateful. To, I, I mean, I, I think we really have the sweet spot with with having AMC put so much effort into uh, promoting the show and, and and making sure that viewers are watching. And uh, it, we, Jace, basically, the way we operate is that we figure out how long it's going to take us to make the show, and then we say we say to our friends at AMC, you know, you guys put it on when you think it's the right time for you, and they they manage to they manage to figure it out. But uh, I mean, I know everyone including us, would like us to work faster, but that's, oh, yeah. uh, you know, it's, it's, I would we're, 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 doing, we're doing our best.
1: But that's also a comment on some of the bigger, high-profile shows that are airing in this peak TV climate where we're not, we're almost like spoiled if we get a show that airs every year on cycle, you know? Like Walking Dead, for example, is always October. Okay, You
4: mm-hmm. know, yeah, but right. that's yeah.
1: almost, you know, outside of a broadcast network, that that doesn't happen on cable and let alone streaming either.
5: That's, that's a lot of discipline
4: then you got yeah. hats
5: off to Angela Kang and all the good people over at uh, over at the Walking Dead I was gonna say your corporate siblings and yeah. all such so. no but and,
4: I, no but you know what it's I, I I like Peter said a minute ago I we would love to do the quality of work we do but do it 10 times faster because then we'd we'd make more money and make more shows forget the money we'd just it'd be nice to have a longer IMDB page when you when your <laughs> career is over but you know, you, you, you do the work you can do. You do it at the speed that, that works best for you. And we have been very lucky in this era of peak TV and, and, and cable television and AMC in particular and Sony have been great to us to give us the time to make it as good as we can make it. Because I did seven years of network, and I couldn't be prouder of the work we did on the X-Files. But you would go into every season knowing – You'd say, you know, you'd have a mental calculation. I can't remember exactly what it was, but you'd know a certain number of episodes would not be up to snuff in your, you know, as compared to your personal mental yardstick of quality. But it just had to be that way because the, the machine, the, the demon needed needed feeding, you know. The machine needs needs input, you know. And, and it just, uh, but I tell you, I love this the way it works now where if you're blessed with a little more time, it, it'd be a, be malfeasance to be a crime to not make use of it and and i watch uh, i know we made use of it on breaking bad and i watch peter and the writers they they they're in there every day they are not farting around like oh we got all the time in the world they're in there beating their (laughs) brains out it's it's great to have that extra time it really it really and and not just on better call Saul. i gotta think it works on all shows now that have the extra time it 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 equates to better quality
1: I do want to go back to one thing that you said. Um, we were obviously joking about, you know, putting the pressure on to deliver, you know, your prediction that, that Saul will, will have a better finale than, than Breaking Bad. But, you know, having landed that ship and landed it well, what did you learn from that pressure? And how, what can you bring from that and maybe give, you know, tell Peter and, and as you shaped shaped the final season of, of Saul?
4: Well, Peter doesn't need me to tell him anything because he was there. Shoulder to shoulder with me and, and all the other writers uh, on Breaking Bad. So he remembers it. And Actually, knowing my memory these days, he probably remembers it better than I do. But, uh, you know, I always say you don't learn from success, <laughs> you don't learn, you only learn from failure. I, it's a sad statement, but I, I'm not even being glib or, or funny trying to be. It's, it really is true. I don't know what lesson to take from Breaking Bad in terms of, I know what we did, we, we worked our butts off, and we were. I was very scared the whole time that we would fail. And we just, thank God we had enough time to, to, to go down every creative avenue, and, and we went down a lot of dead ends, and then we found the one we thought would work best. Thankfully, it worked well. But, you know, Peter already knows that. We already know to, to just give it, uh, you know, give it 110%, 100, whatever, Mathematically impossible percentage. You gotta, you gotta give it your all, <laughs> and uh, but then you just hope for the best. You and, know, as, and, yeah. as you're
5: as you're saying that, you're, I'm having flashbacks to that last season of Breaking Bad and remembering a couple of things. I'm remembering all the scenes. Vince's that room. All these rooms are full, filled with storytellers, people who are great at pitching. And I remember getting so excited about these brilliant scenes. That you nobody has ever seen because uh, there there were brilliant scenes that were just so damn exciting and and heartbreaking. I mean, there was a I don't think it's giving anything away, there was a, a version of the final season of Breaking Bad where Jesse was the one who who killed Hank. And there was God, a, that scene. That, that scene yeah. that scene was incredible. And and you know, it's part of the discipline is to is to go through those, and that's the thing that time gives you, is to go through those and game them out and talk it through. And uh, and I think that's the the one thing that I think the shows share is that we're kind of relentless about talking through our ideas. And even if sometimes you can be in the room and you can feel this is going nowhere. I don't like this. This is. uh, And but you have to have the discipline to say, I don't like it right now, but I have to follow it through to the end. And I just also remember Vince literally banging his head against the wall, saying, what if we didn't have that machine gun in the trunk? Yeah. Do you remember that? <laughs> oh, I, only, I literally bang my head against the wall. If only literally. we didn't have that machine gun in the trunk, all the things that we could do, and I, sometimes I feel that Breaking Bad is our machine gun in the trunk. Uh, you know, all the things that we could do with um, Jimmy McGill and Saul Goodman if we never had to meet up with Breaking Bad, if, if we could have had, if we could have uh, Saul Goodman meet, Ted Benneke in the course yeah. of Better Call Saul, but we know that they didn't meet because we know a breaking. So it's, it's a, um, there's, it's, uh, it's interesting because you do box yourself in, uh, and it, every decision you make excludes a billion possibilities. And it's, uh, that's, I guess that it's part of the fun of it, actually. I love the way you way.
4: put that. I, I thought this show was going to be easier to do. I might've said this at some, in some other venue, but because we knew so much already about this character, I thought Better Call Saul would be easier to do. It turns out it's exponentially harder because of what Peter just said. You don't, you know, as much as I'd like to see uh, Saul Goodman suddenly with a peg leg and an eye patch, you can't do that because he wasn't that way on on, on Breaking Bad. You know, it, it you can't, it's true. It, you are boxed in in ways that you didn't, I didn't think about. And it makes the show harder to create, but... Uh, yeah, my hats off to you, man. It's been because I remember, you know, some of the early seasons being in there thinking, "Oh, wouldn't it be fun to do this?" Oh, wait, no, we can't. That's not part of the canon. That's mm-hmm. not part of the pre-existing story. We can't. We can't go that way.
5: Unfortunately, we have a lot of smart people in the office who remember everything. In fact, uh, Ariel Levine, who is was our, our writer's assistant uh, for a couple of seasons and is now going to be a um, going to be a staff writer in the new season, she has a habit every year before the season starts. She rewatches all of breaking bad and all of better call saul oh my God, she does? And so she has <laughs> wow. it she has it all at her fingertips But she also is the best chess player in the uh, she in, is the, in, best the, in the office and those minds are really invaluable
2: thank you to Vincent Peter the second part of this interview will run in our february 28th episode following the better call saul premiere on february 23rd and february 24th
1: number 3 up third, you know, look, there's been a, a crazy crush of news to start the year. And what better time than for a mailbag segment?
3: Mail, time. Mail time.
2: First off, thanks to the many of you who sent us emails at TV's top five at thr.com. Uh, we got a lot of mailbag submissions this week, and we may split them out over this week and possibly next week. So we really appreciate it. And also, you can just send us emails. We don't need to necessarily beg you on Twitter. We're happy to hear from you. Our first question comes from friend of the five, Kate who asks why Dick Wolf's original Law & Order series won't stream in its entirety on Peacock and why spinoff Trial by Jury and Friend of the Five uh, fan and favorite Kate is the only person who would want to know about Trial by Jury isn't included in the nine-figure library deal.
1: You know, make no mistake, I did get a lot of tweets asking why Trial by Jury wasn't part of of the six-show deal that uh, Peacock signed with Dick Wolf for three different Law & Order shows and all three Chicago's, or the three major Chicago's, but... As for the why the entirety of the flagship isn't there, you know that's a great question. I don't necessarily have an answer other than what I presume to be other deals and arrangements with streamers, including Hulu and Amazon. That's a huge property. As for trial by jury, one of the things that I reported, you know, um, late last year when Dick Wolf took this his entire streaming library out for sale, was this is kind of a, a law, kind of the law of diminishing returns, meaning. You, when you've got hundreds and hundreds, and I think, you know, the deal for the six shows that they did, it, it's still over a thousand episodes or close to it, you know, at a certain point, that's kind of a sizable library becomes something that you don't necessarily need all of, and... Dick Wolf could make and his Wolf Entertainment could make considerably more by breaking it off. And Netflix at some point is going to lose, you know, a lot of its shows as some of these studios take back their their content for their own streaming platforms. So expect to see some of these other offshoots get deals across the streaming landscape. So... Trial by Jury, I could see going to a Hulu or an Amazon or a Netflix. You know, Peacock only wanted the the crown jewels of that lot. And I'm not trying to insult Trial by Jury or any of the other shows that weren't included there. Um, new York Undercover it wasn't part of that. And there continues to be talk about maybe that ABC failed pilot that didn't go anywhere, getting a new take and being packaged with the library at some other streamer. So, yeah, it's basically a wait and see. And I think, you know, Peacock paid for what it, what it wanted. And that's still a steep... Price tag. I'm told it's between 300 and 400 million dollars, and that's just for those six shows. And I I would presume that in time, as those original Law and Order deals expire, the entire library will wind wind up on Peacock eventually. So there you go. Um, up next, Justin has a question specifically for you, Dan. Why do award shows nominations get under your skin so much? And since the Golden Globes didn't nominate a single network show for best comedy or drama, is it realistic that broadcast TV could ask for its own category?
2: Well, first off, Justin, everything gets under my skin. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yes, award show nominations do, but everything does.
1: No, the, the do, does the fact that the Red Sox cheated get under your skin, Dan?
2: Excuse me, it gets me? under mine. As of now, unverified by Major League Baseball.
1: Yeah, but Alex Cora has no career.
2: That is mm. true. So therefore, Man. the Red Sox have done what needed to be done. Anyway, so to answer Justin's question, the answer really is that my favorite part of my job or the part of my job that I feel like is most important is the part where I can celebrate underwatched shows, where I can tell people, if you haven't heard of Hulu's Rami, watch Rami. If you haven't heard of Succession, not so much a current problem, but a bit of a problem last summer, watch Succession. So I know what my level of visibility is. And I know that the Golden Globes have a higher level of visibility. I know that the Emmys have a higher level of visibility. So it upsets me when these platforms with levels of visibility that are greater than mine blunder that level of visibility. And it upsets me when the opportunity is missed to recognize things that, in my opinion, need more recognition. And so that's why I get annoyed if award shows would start nominating all the right things constantly, I wouldn't be annoyed by them. I don't know I'd necessarily care anymore cuz annoyance is part of what makes me care, but yeah, that's that's the answer is that is that when I see things that aren't being recognized and things that are awful getting recognition instead, it gets on my nerve because it's a wasted opportunity to if you're claiming to recognize the best of things to direct people in the direction of The best of things.
1: And that's also part of the reason why these nominations matter so much to these networks and streamers. And that's why they spend so much money campaigning to get the nominations and to get the wins because it helps things cut through.
2: Exactly. The number of shows that could have been saved by getting the recognition that they deserved, could have been extended, could have become more robust shows if they had gotten the recognition they deserved is myriad. And so that's where it frustrates me. As to Justin's other question, I don't know. My, my easier answer is that uh, if broadcast TV doesn't get more nominations, then broadcast TV should probably make better programming uh, and they should take bigger swings and they should make more efforts to be more artistically viable. And instead, their goal is to be more mainstream. I don't think we've reached the point at which it's necessary to perform affirmative action on broadcast network dramas just because it might get a nomination for evil this year you know that's that's probably my feeling but maybe in a couple more years if ratings for the Emmys continue to go down and it becomes you know the only way that we can save this show is by splitting out broadcast things maybe it becomes a conversation for now yeah. I'm not.
1: Um, I do want to follow up on that one, Dan, with another question for you. You mentioned Evil as one of the big rookie shows this year. Laura in Orlando writes in and wants to know, with the the broadcast season halfway done, which shows do you think are dead and headed for cancellations? And she singled out specifically Emergence, which she she says she thinks is a goner, but is curious to hear what you think.
2: And you really just wanted and to read Laura. Also wants to
1: know what loser journalist didn't vote for Derek Jeter in the Hall of Fame.
2: That's the reason why you wanted to read Laura's question. And it's a totally viable question. Both Derek Jeter's more, really. just a Hall of Famer. I don't know. And I mean it should have
1: been unanimous. I but, say yeah.
2: this as I say this as a Red Sox fan who thinks that Derek Jeter was also very overrated. He can be overrated and still be completely and totally a first ballot Hall of Famer. So anyway, whoever that was, silly person. I don't know that I want to get into that this year because Of kind of an important truth that we don't anymore understand what makes a show successful on broadcast television. And so do the linear ratings for Emergence look cancelable?
1: Every linear rating for every show looks cancelable.
2: (laughs) Exactly. So I don't know what the numbers are on different ancillary platforms. And I would like to believe that a show like Emergence... Could find an audience. Also, I would add that I think probably there are some people who are out there waiting for a show like Emergence or a show like Evil, which has already been renewed, so not in the conversation, to end its season so that they can binge it, which is a really good way in 2020 to get a broadcast show canceled, is to not watch it when it's actually airing in any form. So I have, you know, I do have concerns about Emergence because it's a show I, I like a lot. I have some concerns about Stumptown also because it's a show I like some. I have no concerns about Evil because it's a show that is doing just fine and, you know— has already been renewed, so
1: yeah. I also think, for you know, from my news point of point of view, I could see anything that's got some kind of strong buzz and a marketable star, where you've got Alison Tolman in, in Emergence and Colby Smulders in Stumptown. I think you'll see a lot of these show these rookies like that that have gotten some cr- good critical uh, feedback coming back for a second season, because you know who cares about the linear ratings? Because when you look at it, what I'm also curious about is when you factor in foreign sales. That helps the show continue on, which obviously helped Designated Survivor live as long as it did. But I think the bigger issue is that a lot of these shows, these new shows are expensive to market and often are going to premiere with the same viewership that a show like Emergence did. So you've already paid to market it. You've already got a big recognizable star. You've already got some good critical goodwill going for it. I think you're going to see a lot of networks um, showing their patience with a lot of these shows. And other things that the, the shows that, that are getting critically panned and what's that? What Was it Outmatched on Fox?
2: Excuse the, the me. The Jason I, Biggs comedy? I listened to a commercial on my radio this morning driving into work where they said critics say it's their new favorite comedy. I have no idea who those
1: critics I'm are. I'm not sure. But like the ones that you know that are, are, are total dogs, those will be the ones that are going to be replaced quickly. Rounding up the mailbag segments, Greg emails and wants to know, Dan, if there was any movie at Sundance this year that you could see, what would it be? Craig can count as a friend of the
2: five also because he's my friend and former boss. If I could see one, I assume Greg wants to know narrative because, you know, lots of docs and I'd probably be happy to see all of them. The answer is probably Ben Zaitland's uh, Wendy. Uh, He is the director of Beasts of the Southern Wild. And one of my favorite Sundance experiences ever, honestly, was running out of a blizzard in Park City into a theater knowing very, very little about Beasts of the Southern Wild and in that moment just being caught up in its very unique world. And that's one of the things that you can do at Sundance is have those kind of get caught up in the world without knowing anything about it experiences. And so Wendy, which is kind of a take, it looks like, on Peter Pan looks very interesting to me and inevitably disappointing, but I want to see it anyway.
1: Um, Is there any good TV stuff premiering at Sundance? There's a
2: lot of good TV stuff. There's definitely a lot of TV stuff. Certainly the thing that has gotten the most publicity already is Hulu's four-hour Hillary Clinton documentary. You should definitely read our colleague Lacey Rose's fantastic interview with Hillary Clinton, which has been getting passed around and lots of buzz. Uh,
1: Over at THR.com? Over at
2: THR.com. I think definitely that will... A conversation starter. There are a lot of interesting, kind of episodic things that are getting play there. There's, for example, Love Fraud, which is on Showtime. It's it's pretty good. Uh, there's McMillions from HBO. It's a lot of fun. It's kind of a, a true crime heisty thing that will be premiering in February, so it's pretty nearby. And then. There's a four, nearly four hour ESPN Lance Armstrong doc, which is a lot of Lance Armstrong in a short period of time. And I need to this weekend get to Steve James's upcoming Chicago politics unscripted documentary series. Uh, Steve James, of course, did Hoop Dreams and many other things and did America to Me, which was my favorite show of two years ago, which I saw for the first time at Sundance. So looking forward to that. Lots and lots of Sundance stuff, and I'll be reviewing some amount of it.
1: Well, that wraps up this week's mailbag. If Reminder that if you have questions that you would like to hear us address on future episodes, drop us an email at tvstop5 at thr.com.
0: Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring.
1: A laundry?
5: Ooh, a book club! Computer solitaire, huh?
0: Ah, <sighs> oh, sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino.
2: Our guest this week is one of the most acclaimed novelists of his generation. He's the author of The Mysteries of Pittsburgh, Wonder Boys, the Yiddish Policemen's Union, and the Pulitzer Prize-winning The Amazing Adventures of Cavalier and Clay. His recent push into TV has included Netflix's Unbelievable and now CBS All Access's Star Trek Picard. We're excited to be joined this week by Michael Chabon. Thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. We appreciate it. Thank you. I'm very happy to be here. So the premiere features this long list of people with story by credit, with writing by credit, coming from the more solitary and autocratic background of being a novelist. You know, how alien is the TV process to you? And what would you say your level of acclamation is at this point?
6: Well, you know, I mean, there's no question. I became a writer because as a kid, I was the kind of kid who liked to play by himself. You know, I like to play... I was a, an only child till I was about five and a half, and I like to play with my toys in my room. And to be able to just sit in your room and invent things and make up worlds and make up characters was something that I enjoyed doing before I ever knew it was something that you could, you know, try to make a living at. So that is where I come from. But you know, I had this sort of gradual introduction, and it was. All Really, all of this is through the agency of Akiva Goldsman, because he brought me in first. He, he created a series of writers' rooms for features, trying to create shared film universes for various pieces of IP. And so I, he brought me in first to work in this Hasbro toy room with all of these amazing screenwriters, um, people whose you know, work. I loved somebody like Brian K Vaughn, for example, whose comics work I love so much. And why the you know,
1: last man is one of my favorites oh, too. God, he, I mean,
6: he's a genius and yeah, he actually has a connection to, uh, amazing adventures of Cavalier and clay. He wrote a series of comics based on sort of the DNA of that book. So, you know, to be in that room to be just, and all these incredible imaginations and wits and so on, just coming up with stories. I loved it. And then a A couple years later, he invited me to do it again with a different piece of IP, the Ologies books. And it was, again, I just loved every minute of it. So I started to understand, like, this is kind of fun to sort of collaboratively create worlds, to collaboratively come up with plots and stories and characters. I I really enjoyed it. If you're doing it with smart people with great imaginations and great storytelling skills, it's really fun. And it was in that second room that Akiva took me aside, and he had become involved with Discovery at that point. And he said, you know, we're going to do a series of short films to run between the first and second seasons of of Discovery. Would you be interested? He knew I was a big Star Trek fan. He said, would you want to write one of them? And I said, yes, immediately. Okay. And that was the the entry point for me. But So I'd already had a taste of how fun it could be to be in that collaborative room environment. Um, and that just, you know, it, it's a new it is a new thing to me, but I took to it right away. And once again, we reproduced the, the conditions in that. I was with Akiva and Alex and Kirsten Beyer, like the four of us were the nucleus initially of generating what became Star Trek Picard. And they're just so creative. They're so inventive. They're so fun to work with. We all worked well together. So, you know, I learned something about myself that there's another way of working that I could really enjoy. Now it goes up to a whole nother, when you're actually on set and, there are hundreds of people there, like that kind of collaboration. You've got all the department heads and all the people that work for them and all the various crew members. And you're all collaborating in this very almost a mechanical way that involves tools and wires and cables and light bulbs. And that kind of very physical kind of collaboration, again, was a whole new thing for me. But I, I loved it.
1: It's, it's very much the opposite of writing it by yourself. <laughs> Completely. And it's
6: good to, you know, I'm I'm 50 Five years old, it's really good to learn new things about it, to make discoveries, to find out after all these years I could actually do creative work, imaginative work, storytelling in a completely different way than I've ever done it before and enjoy it.
2: It, it strikes me that a lot of kind of what drives novelists to Hollywood, as it were, is having their novels screwed up by Hollywood. Do you think that if, for (laughs) example, Wonder Boys hadn't been a really, really good movie that you might have 10 years earlier felt the need to make this shift yourself?
6: Um, Well, no, I've actually been trying to write for TV for a long time now. And and in fact, kind of just at the almost predating the sort of current peak TV moment, um, I um, started pitching ideas for TV shows in the late 90s. And didn't get anywhere with that, but actually, I pitched my novel Telegraph Avenue that came out in 2012. That began its life as a pitch for a TV series that didn't go anywhere. So I've been, try- I, you know, I got interested in TV as soon as it started to seem that people were like on HBO and the earliest shows, like as soon as it started, it seemed like oh, you you could move away from the episodic model. And what moving away from the episodic model allows you to do is to create characters in a way much more analogous to the way you do it when you're writing fiction, to let the characters accrue and build and change over time in a way that they had, generally speaking. I mean, some episodic shows did it to a degree, including Star Trek, but to have that ability suddenly made TV seem like a more interesting outlet for storytelling than it had seemed to me previously so um you know I was trying for a while but I didn't really get anywhere
1: so as someone who loves the Star Trek world to be able to be in this with Patrick Stewart no less can you talk about the the process of working with Alex Kurtzman on this show and of course working with Patrick Stewart sure like what was that experience like for you and obviously you know you're you know, segueing into season two before passing the baton to Terry Metall as a showrunner. What is that whole process like for you and, you know, coming in and then, of course, leaving?
6: Well, first of all, Alex, he's the kind of person who, and I've met, you know, he's a rare kind of person. He's the kind of person where if you come to him with an idea, he doesn't just say, you know, that's a good idea. That would be cool. Like you say, you give him an idea, you come up with something and then the next time you talk to him, he started to do what's needed to put that idea into practice. He's like a kind of person who makes things happen. He's so passionate, he's so excited and engaged and he has this kind of fundamental, it's like a kind of optimism that he just keeps pressing forward and he always seems ready to take on more and it's, it's inspiring. It, it kind of helps keep everyone's energy up and their enthusiasm up, even at moments where it might feel like Things might be flagging um, or there is reason to be discouraged. He's very encouraging. You know, in addition to all the other things he does in terms of writing and production, everything that he does as a creative artist, he's also kind of a, I mean, cheerleader sounds like a too dismissive a term. He he keeps people engaged emotionally in the collective effort. And when the effort is so collective, you need people who have that ability. So from the moment we first met, uh, you know, I was—I just was really taken with him. And an, he's a fun person to be around. And ultimately, I mean, I write books I could just stay in my room. I'm only really going to want to do this if I can do it with people that are good to work with, that are fun to work with, that it's fun to be around. And, and uh, both Alex and Akiva Goldsman very much meet that description. Uh, meeting Patrick, working with Patrick, I mean, when you first meet him, when you first sit down with him, it's quite easy to be somewhat intimidated. You know, he's a, he's a knight of the realm. He's Sir Patrick Stewart. He's this one of the greatest British actors of of his or any generation. He looks very formidable. You know, he always did. When he was Picard on the bridge of the Enterprise, what worked right away is the way that he looked so much like a captain. You just accepted that immediately. There's that, and then there's also... The consciousness as you sit down with him, like, oh my god, I'm sitting down with Jean Luc Picard. (laughs) Like that's Jean Luc Picard is sitting across the table from me, and within minutes, less than minutes, like that all just dissolves. He's such a warm, funny, kind of adorable person. Um, He's charming. uh, He's curious about. He asks. You questions he asks questions of everyone sitting around the table. He remembers things the next time you saw him that you that was things that were going on in your life. Like he's 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 engaged with the people around him in a very warm, interested way, and uh, that just made it very easy to kind of get over all of that initial sort of the double flutter of meeting this great actor and Captain Picard all at the same time. He was a source of inspiration to us from the beginning he set challenges for us that we had to meet and from the beginning you know he came onto the project saying I will do this if you assure me that I will not be doing anything I've already done before that I will not be doing any, that Jean-Luc Picard will not be doing anything that he's done before and it was easy to say yes to that and it felt right to say yes to that none of us was interested in doing that either but it you know it, it, once the rubber hits the road he's a lot of the sort of ideas you begin to get right off the bat, your sort of first ideas, it's very easy to sort of, especially if you know the show TNG as well as I knew the show, um, it's very easy to sort of fall into like, well, you could do this or we could do that and the other thing. And, and so to have that challenge from the first, like, no, we have to do something new. Let's move into, let's put that idea aside and look for the next idea. Um, that was a really useful, creative uh, tool for us. And then constantly throughout the production of the series, he's the ultimate arbiter of Jean-Luc Picard. He knows the character better than anyone else. And so I at first I had this somewhat sobering experience in the earliest days of, ha- of sitting down with him, going through the, the pages, going through the sides for that day, let's say, and having him say, I don't think Picard would say that, or I don't think he would say it like that, you know, and I, at first, maybe if I felt like, oh, I messed up or I got something wrong or whatever. But actually, it, very quickly, I started to look forward to that, like, and to rely on it and to hope that it's because we, we take chances dramatically. We take chances with the character of Picard throughout, throughout the course of the season and to, you know, you, to... Just as much as it might feel like, oh, sorry, I messed up when he says, I don't think Picard would say that, when he would say the opposite, if he said, like, I like this or this is good, then, you know, that has all the more weight because, you know, he's not just blowing sunshine up your ass and he's going to tell you whether it's working or not. So, um, you know, and we were able, I think we were encouraged to push the character into confronting things about himself than... We would have been if Patrick had taken a more like, you know, whatever, I'm just going to play the role and I'll say the words that you write. And, you know, it, it was incredibly useful. I'm very excited
2: that Cavalier and Clay is sort of set up now in a miniseries form. I'm curious what the sort of bumps in the road have been like over the years and and why you think that sort of TV is ready at this moment to actually finally get that book right.
6: Well, You know, I, I worked on the attempt to make it as a feature, um, at Paramount and I worked on that script for almost five years and we got beyond close. So we actually thought it was happening. Uh, I, we all thought, it was greenlit, you know, to the degree that the production designer that they hired had taken his kids out of school here in L.A. and then enrolled them in school in London because they were going to shoot the interiors in London. You know, it was happening and then suddenly it wasn't happening. So that was a painful experience. <laughs> it's probably one of the most painful creative or professional experiences I've ever had. It was really disappointing. In hindsight, OK, well, the truth is, I think that was a good script. I think that, that script was the best I could do to take a big huge novel that spans 15 years or 17 years um, and condense it and compress it and to find ways of telling, find a sort of a whole new way of telling this story that could be done in two hours, two hours and 15 minutes, something like that. But inevitably, there was a lot lost. We Uh had to sacrifice a lot and just not even bother with a lot of the book because there just wasn't room for it. So... I mean, it's, to me, it's quite obvious, at least with certain books, it makes so much more sense to tell them to do like a Handmaid's Tale, to, to to take the time that a novel takes to establish a world, to establish characters, to get you to know what people are like, and then begin to change what they're like. Um, that takes time. It takes space. And so it does seem like a natural way of adapting, especially bigger stories, bigger books that have more to cover greater spans of time. You know, other things just worked out. The, that was done at Paramount. And so the divorce between CBS and Paramount would have, if we had been trying to do this earlier, would have made certain things more difficult in terms of rights and and all that. The reunion of CBS and Paramount, like that was good timing. That, In addition to the fact that we're at this sort of peak serial TV novels being adapted moment in television, that also... Happened and made things a lot easier for lawyers. So you know that was a good thing. Um, That's how good art works—is through exactly. Being easier lawyers, for lawyers play a much greater role than most people suspect <laughs> yeah, corp- in the And corporate parents greater. merging exactly. And, exactly. Yeah. Um, and uh, you know, then just um, it's twenty. Uh, the book was published in two thousand, so it's twenty years. And so it, there's something. It just maybe this is the moment. Like finally, all the things are aligning properly. And my wife, I yell at woman. And I, you know, we've started to make things together in television. That's the way we collaborate. Um, We don't collaborate on books or we don't write books together. We have edited books together. So as a kind of way of continuing the collaboration that began with our work on Unbelievable, um, you know, this feels like a, a next, a really good next step for that, too. So just a lot of things came together.
1: Yeah. Um, You know, you mentioned your wife. You guys just signed a big overall deal with CBS Studios, Mm -hmm. which, of course, was behind Unbelievable and Picard and Cavalier. How much more content are you guys looking to do for television? And, you know, with CBS and Viacom re-merged, there's a lot of different platforms, you know, the broadcast network, the streamer, Showtime, Comedy Central, all of the the Mm -hmm. basic cable networks. There's Mm -hmm. stuff all over the dial. What are you interested in, in pursuing with as part of that deal?
6: Well, we have we have things, other things in the works right now. She's got a show at Showtime a pilot that you we're know, sort of waiting to see what happens with that, and um, she's working on a show at Hulu, and we have other things that we would like to do. Um, you know, we're, Cavalier and Clay is a big, a big thing, and so I mean that is our next thing, and um, we're just now beginning to work on that in the most preliminary way, but. If everything works out, that will be occupying our time for the next while, at least in terms of what we do in TV. So, um, you know, and that's probably going to be our focus. But we, you know, we have a lot of other things that we've talked about doing that we'd like to do. Um, there's a book that I acquired the rights to that she's trying to develop as a TV show. So we'll see. Have you
2: cracked the number of episodes or seasons the Cavalier and Clay that's, is going to require?
6: Well, we have some <laughs> thoughts about it, but we're, we're that's the first. Meeting, we're going to have, and we're going to sit down. We're continuing to work with Alex Kurtzman and Akiva Goldsman on that because we, you know, I've loved working with them. Ayelet worked on the first season of Picard, too. Um, she came on about halfway through as a, a co EP, so um, we all work well together. And one of the things that those two guys are so good at is story and story structure and breaking things. And so, we're going to really rely on their expertise and their knowledge to help us answer that question
1: well we do like to end every interview with the same question what are you watching and enjoying
6: let's see well we just kind of came to the end of a bunch of shows i was enjoying uh, if we're talking about tv the crown the latest season of the crown which i loved and which featured our beloved harry Treadaway um in a fun part on that and uh uh the mandalorian i quite enjoyed i mean who doesn't love baby yoda (laughs) Um, (laughs) for real (laughs) uh and um there's another one that just came to an end that I was very sad when I realized there weren't any more, but now I'm drawing a blank on what it was.
1: I mean, if you're like many of our previous guests, my guess would be Fleabag. Oh, well, <laughs> I feel
6: like we finished flea. We got on the Fleabag train pretty early. And then the, so the latest season, as soon as it was available, we, we ate the entire thing all at once, like the giant cake that it is. Um, but yeah, oh, my God, that show's incredible. I loved Watchmen. I loved Watchmen yeah. so much. Um, that doesn't need me to shout out to it, but, <laughs> but still, yeah, that, that one just ended. So that was, I mean, right now, I think we're, I feel like there's a little bit of a trough that we're waiting for things to start. But I've been hearing about this new Dracula, the Moffat, um, Mark Gaddis Dracula. I haven't watched it, but people keep it. Fun. It's, it's fun.
2: It's like Hammer Horror
6: in TV series. I one. love that stuff. So And I like what they've done before. I love their Sherlock. So I'm, I'm excited to watch that.
2: Excellent. Well, thank you so much for My joining pleasure. us today. Thank, thank you. you, Michael. Thanks a lot.
1: Star Trek: Picard premiered January twenty third, with new episodes launching Fridays on CBS All Access. Number five. As usual, we wrap things up with the critics' corner. Dan, this week it's mostly a lot of returning shows and a couple of f- big farewells. 80 Bryant, Hulu comedy Shrill, returns for its second season. The new season of Riverdale's older streaming cousin, Chilling Adventures of Sabrina, uh, returns on Netflix, and Ashton Kutcher comedy, The Ranch, The CW's Arrow, and NBC's beloved Good Place all say farewell um, on Netflix, CW, and NBC, respectively. And then you've got the new season of Daniel Radcliffe and Steve Buscemi anthology Miracle Workers on TBS. What you got? Exhaustion is what I have.
2: <laughs> um, well, let's see. So I guess probably the the thing we want to talk about from this group is, of course, The Ranch.
1: <laughs> Said no one. Oh, well, <laughs> Sorry.
2: Rest in peace to The Ranch. Uh, you are a thing that existed. Uh, Arrow, I am currently pretty far behind on Arrow. I will eventually finish it. Uh, but it's a show that if you look at how the CW is currently constituted, is pretty hugely influential. I, yeah, I mean, basically kicked
1: off the entire DC universe yes, on that the, network. The, the
2: network at this point has been built in the likeness of Era, which is pretty remarkable. But really and truly, The Good Place is the best of these shows, and I look forward to seeing the finale, which we have not seen, because it's just one of those truly unique and special broadcast shows, and for much of its running time, it's been the best show of any kind on broadcast, and I hope that it... Is shown off in good form and I look forward to seeing the ending of that and the new season of Miracle Workers is cute if you if you liked the first season it's it's very different it's an anthology and so this one is set in the middle ages and features the same cast in different roles and if you like Simon Rich's quirky sense of humor which I find very charming it's a very low pressure show to to watch and probably a show honestly best suited for semi-background binging. It's, it's
1: a really you, great cast, I should say.
2: It's a, it's a wonderful cast. And it's I think Simon Rich is extremely talented and extremely funny. I don't necessarily always care about the quote-unquote story he's telling, but I like his perspective, his worldview, and the thing he does with actors. And so, you know, it's a, a lightly pleasant show. It's never one that I'm going to tell people should be the first thing on their queue, but it's definitely a thing to watch.
1: Well, that feels like a good place to wrap things up. Thank you for listening to TV's top five, the Hollywood Reporters TV podcast. We'll be back next week when we'll be joined by BoJack Horseman creator Raphael Bob-Waksberg.
2: Until then, be sure to subscribe on all of your various podcasting platforms. If you like us, rate us. If you really like us, leave a little review type thing. It helps spread the word of mouth. Come say hi to us on the Twitter. We're always happy to say hi to people and to hear your questions, comments, and concerns. But maybe just limit it to the comments and concerns, because if you have questions, you should email us at TVSTOP5 at THR.com. That's TV's Top 5 the number five, at THR.com. Until next week, Leslie.
1: Until next week, Dan.